God, we thank you that through Jesus we can sing and we can know that uh, it is in fact well. That we're not for the, the work of Jesus, even the last part we sang, that upon, upon his return uh, it would not be well with us. That we would, we would cower away in fear at the coming judgment of God. But because of Christ, uh, we can rest in his finished work, that the wrath due to our sin was poured out upon him, and there's no more left for us to drink. So we rejoice in that this morning. We thank you that despite what the world may give us, despite what circumstances may tell us, that your word uh, is ready to to speak a, a greater word of encouragement and hope than any circumstance or any feeling we may have. Thank you that your word is living and active and able to teach and instruct and correct us as your people. And I pray that through your spirit, it would do just that this morning. Uh, Thank you for your love for us. It's not conditional upon our pursuit of you, but that you pursued us uh, when we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And so our hope is in him. Our security is in him. Our confidence is in him. And we boast in nothing except the cross of Christ to which the world has been crucified to us and us to the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, man. Heart is full. Uh, my mind is full as well. So you can grab your Bibles. For those of you looking forward to getting into James, you're going to have to wait one more week. I apologize. We're going to get into James next week. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, there is a reason. It's not just kind of because I was on the road and didn't prepare a message. I wrestled a lot of the week with what to share um, we had a time of prayer as pastors a few weeks ago. Uh, we were in our, our pastor's meeting, and, and as we were praying together, one of the things that uh, came to mind for me as we were praying, and, and I, would, I would attribute it to the Lord putting a particular phrase or word on, on my heart just subjectively through his spirit and through the experience of praying together. And it was, th- it was, it was this phrase. Um, it was, just because you can fill a room doesn't necessarily mean I'm at work. And so as we have been processing through uh, even our growth as a church, I think there's a way in which it's good for us to be challenged and confronted with the fact that we need to evaluate growth through a biblical lens. And just because we can fill a room and just because we feel a subjective sense of energy and momentum doesn't necessarily mean that God is at work. It doesn't necessarily mean he's not. But it's not the only evidence to prove that God is, in fact, at work. And so it brings up some other questions, like how do we know if God is at work? I've talked to even some of those who serve in the body about this very question. Like how do we evaluate if God is at work? As you think of that from like a church-wide standpoint, the same question could be asked of our own lives. It's like how do we know that God is at work in us, like individually, And one of the the ways I would say you could answer that question in a lot of different ways, but one of the particular ways that we should answer that as believers is, are we growing in maturity? Are we growing in likeness to Jesus? One of the chief ways that I think we we could gauge God's work in us is his life worked kind of outward from us. Like there's a display of his character within us that more and more reflects the light of Jesus to the world through the way that we live 
And so we're going to jump, we're going to kind of parachute in in Ephesians chapter 4. And this is just kind of born out of my heart for us as a church in this particular season. Uh, as we've experienced a lot of growth this last year and as we pray for the future, I don't ever want us to get it twisted or confused as to how we evaluate growth. I was praying just yesterday, and I prayed it over the years, that I, I don't want to be, a, as a pastor, just merely managing an organization. And I don't feel like that's where we are. I don't hear that when I say that. But I don't want us to get it confused that just because chairs are full, that that means that, means that God's at work. And I want you to evaluate in your own life how do I know that God is at work in me? And I want to give you a few things to consider this morning. So in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul gives this just beautiful picture of the work of the God, the mystery of the grace of God revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so maybe I could just start by sharing really plainly for everyone in this room, for Christian and non-Christian alike, the good news of the gospel. And it essentially could be boiled down to this, is that apart from Jesus, you are not a part of the family of God. You're actually an, an enemy of God. And through this supernatural work of Jesus, he takes on all of your blame, all of your sin, all of your guilt, and by faith in him, you get to be adopted into his family. You used to be a foreigner, now you're a child of God. You used to be an alien and stranger, now you get to be part of his family. It used to be darkness, now you're light in the Lord, all through faith in Jesus alone, right? So we see in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by any works that we've done that we can be reconciled to God. We see in chapter 1 that we're called, adopted, redeemed, he's forgiven us, he's given his people an inheritance, we're sealed for a future day and a certain inheritance that won't fade away for us, Peter talks about in his letter, we're made alive in Christ God has reconciled us to himself and to one another. We see this peculiar family of faith made up from people of every tribe and tongue and nation, particularly Jews and Gentiles, all those who aren't Jews, made up into one family, lifted up like a trophy for the gospel of God's grace to say, look what I've done as he displays his wisdom and his grace to the entire cosmos through this peculiar family. We're an expression of that, a small one. This is something of what heaven will be like in our various backgrounds, ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds, personalities, and gifts. We've been placed together to function as a family. And God is making much of himself through that. In verse 1 of chapter 4, chapter 4 is kind of like a pivot in the book of Ephesians where the first three chapters are kind of given to doctrine. The next three chapters are kind of given to practice. Like, what does it mean to live as a believer? And so the beginning of chapter four, if you're there, Paul says, I, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. As the church, we're kingdom people called to live for the king. And so we have lives that are called to be conformed to the character of God. That our character should conform to the calling upon our lives. I urge you, by the grace of God, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with, with which you've been called. Humility, not pride. Gentleness, not anger. We're patient, not short-tempered. And we walk in a persevering kind of love for one another that preserves the unity that we have in Jesus. And through the church... 
And though the church is incredibly diverse, we are one. And so Paul goes into this list of ones, like one body, one spirit, one hope, one savior, one common faith and baptism, one God who reigns overall. And here's one of the challenges in the body of Christ is that diversity in the body, all those categories I mentioned, socioeconomic background, ethnicity, personality, gifts, all these different things, they simultaneously stand to be one of the greatest expressions of the power of God while also being the, the greatest test to his people. Like, can we love one another even though we're so different? Can we? Can we be devoted to one another in brotherly love? Can we show patience when we're wronged, when we don't understand? Are we willing to, to listen? And that's the way in which Paul commends the people of God to respond. And God has composed the church body with individuals who possess a diversity of gracious gifts. That's in verse 7. Look there with me. But grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And those gifts are to be used to build up the body of Christ and bring glory to God. If you're to summarize like a principle over all the spiritual gifts passages, like why does God give, give gifts to his people in diverse array is to glorify himself and to build up the church. You can look in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 through the perennial chapters on spiritual gifts, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, this section right here. Sum it all up. The gifts that we have, church family, are to glorify God and to build up his church. Every single ounce of them, every single ounce of grace given to the people of God is to glorify his name and to build up the church to make disciples, to reach more. I want us to read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, now with that little bit of introduction. Because one of the things we, we see as well is that God has provided the church body with leaders who possess a diversity of gracious gifts to equip the saints. Let's read in verse 11. It says, And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So several words here or phrases in this section speak to growth or maturity. How do we know if we're growing? Well, we're kind of situated in a place where all of the language points to the fact that there is a maturing process that should take place in the life of a Christian. Let me point out just a couple moments attain to is this picture of moving toward something. You're not stagnant. You don't just believe for one time and then you just kind of wait until Jesus returns. There's a movement toward a particular place or thing. We're moving towards something. Mature manhood, a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Both give this picture of a progressive maturity. No longer children. We become adults, as it were. We're to grow up in every way. 
The body's to grow as it builds itself up in love. And this word until places a time stamp on things with present and future implications, right? So I tell my kids, we go on a date night, hey, you can watch a movie until we return. Like it puts a timeline on it. And until the day where we're complete, we're going to need the people of God. We're going to need leadership in the local church. And we're going to need to continue to progress in our relationship with Jesus until it's complete, finally. And ultimately, when we see him face to face. So here's the main framework I want to give you this morning. And time is kind of working against me. But here's the main point. The Christian maturity involves growing in stature, knowledge, and contribution. Stature, knowledge, and contribution. How do we know that God's at work in us? We're growing in stature, knowledge, and contribution. Let me unpack those three. The first is stature. A maturing Christian will look increasingly like Jesus over time. A maturing Christian will look increasingly like Jesus over time. So as you see in this text, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, we'll go back to those in a minute, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In Ephesians 1.4 says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And those whom God calls, he conforms to the image of his son. You see that in Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. I think we intuitively know that healthy things grow, right? So if my youngest daughter, Shelby, who's eight and a half right now, if we went away for five years and we came back, and Shelby was the same size, you'd be like, something's a little amiss. She should be growing. Why? Because healthy things grow. And so spiritually as well, that we are to be ones who grow in likeness to Jesus, because healthy things grow. A steadily growing Christian will be moving toward a specific measurement of maturity. And here's where it's a little bit mind-blowing. That measurement is the full stature of Jesus. The fullness of the stature of Jesus. Complete maturity and not just partial. Now, if we're honest, if we're honest, this is where we're like, pump the brakes. Like, you can't, I mean, complete maturity, Right? Our aim is like to, to look just like Jesus? Yes. But don't just take my word for it. Let me just read you a few other texts, just real briefly. Jesus' words. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Pastors, proclaim Christ, admonishing every man to present every man complete in Christ. The fruit of trials, James 1.4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. Now, don't hear me say that you're, you're called to be perfect in this life. But I also don't want you to hear that somehow the grace of God softens the call to maturity. Because the picture scripturally is that we want to aim to be just like Jesus in everything that we do. Knowing that grace carries us all along the way until the end. By faith, by grace, that's it. But the endeavor is to look just like Jesus in every way, completely. And our temptation is to use grace to soften the call to maturity, but grace doesn't soften the call to maturity. Grace makes maturity possible. 
in the Christian life. And we can so easily get this twisted. It's like we have license just to kind of be apathetic toward our own growth, apathetic toward things in our lives, categories of our lives that we know aren't in alignment with the Word of God. But the grace of God commends us and allows us to pursue maturity. I would say this, atrophy is an alarm for maturity. So I had the experience about 20 years ago, I had reconstructive surgery on my left ankle that had me up on crutches for, well, down, but then also up on crutches for six weeks. Couldn't exercise it at all. And so when I, when I got done with that process six, eight weeks later, like my left calf was just sad. Or looking in the mirror, just being like, oh my goodness. Like, and it took a lot of work, and I think it's actually still smaller than my right. And so, but I, I could have just said, well, it's okay. I mean, my, my right one's plenty strong. I'll just kind of lean on my right. I'll just run with my right leg. And it sounds silly, but I think we actually do that spiritually. We can see some part of our spiritual life that's underdeveloped, it's atrophied, it's weaker. And we can just be like, well, I'm strong in this other area, so it's okay. And I just wonder if one of the things God wants us to hear this morning is that one of the ways that we know that God is at work in our lives, that we don't just minimize the areas in our lives that are underdeveloped spiritually. We run hard after those areas just like we would in any other area. Because why? Because we want to be like Jesus. There's life found there. Grace allows us to move that direction. So grace doesn't soften the call to maturity. It makes maturity possible. We are in process in this life, but we must work hard to make progress in this life. And God will meet you where you are. Hear that clearly. There's not a call to clean your life up in order to come to God, to come to Jesus. He's the only one that can clean your life up. God will meet you there, but he doesn't leave us where he finds us. Because how can the God of the universe come into a person's life and leave them the same? Is he really indifferent to areas of unhealth in our lives spiritually? Do you think he just wants only part of us? Obviously the answer is no. Like he, he died. He gave all of himself that he might have all of you for him, for his name, to demonstrate to the world that he's worth it and he's better and he's able to take broken people and make them new. Amen. The grace of God enables us to pursue and to achieve maturity, Christian maturity involves growing in stature. And the second one, it involves growing in knowledge. A maturing Christian is grounded for growth. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We are many members who make up one body brought together by one faith. There's so much that could be said here. The unity of the faith is not just merely organizational identity. I pray that none of us are part of the body here that you don't become a member here just because you just like the vision statement. There's just some way in which, like, yeah, I can resonate with this organization. No, that only get us so far. 
Like we're here together in this room and as a, as a family of God because we've been united by Jesus despite our differences. And we walk to the table and we take communion. It's like this visual representation that all we have is Jesus, all we need is Jesus. Every single person's welcome at his table because he's gracious. And we get to do this life together. A common faith, there's a unity of the faith. Our faith is in a common Savior, chapter 1, verse 15. Our faith is what has saved us, Ephesians 2.8. Our faith is why we possess bold, confident access to God, Ephesians 3.12. Our faith through which the Spirit of Christ takes up residence in our hearts, 3.17. And in chapter 6, you see the shield of faith being that which protects us from the wiles of our enemy. There's a unity of the faith. There's a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Day by day, there's an experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our treasure, as, the, as our Redeemer, the one who has adopted us into his family. And day by day, as we walk with Jesus, there's a way in which our knowledge of who he is begins to increase. We gain an accurate, full, experiential knowledge of him. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 says, We have not ceased to pray for you. This is Paul speaking to the church. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And what this isn't is just some academic exercise. Christians are just called to be academics, amassing knowledge. This knowledge is the experiential knowledge, like we know Jesus and we grow to be like Jesus. It's a knowledge that takes root with such depth that we grow like that tree in Psalm 1, rooted in Christ, able to stand against like the storms of this life. A knowledge that is not just mere intellectual assent to something, but a knowledge that changes and transforms each one of us. God has given leaders to the church who are charged to preach the word of God with faithfulness and clarity and consistency as God's people are submitted to God's word, united in faith, growing in their knowledge of God, there's a biblical sturdiness that results. That's why we get up here and preach God's word. And family, unfortunately, like in our culture, picking up this book, preaching it as our primary authority has become more and more rare. And I don't say that to commend us. But I do say it to accentuate that all we have is Christ. Like all we have is the word of God. So we give it to you to commend you to follow Jesus and to say he's worth it. To remind you of things that you've heard a hundred times. It's the hardest job of a preacher. Just get up here and preach old good news time and time again. That's what you need. That's what I need. Old good news. By the grace of God, I've been saved by faith in Jesus alone. My life belongs to him. My maturity is an expression of worship because I want to be given to him in every single area of my life. Not only because there's joy in life found there, but because my, my life says more than just something about me. If I'm a Christian, my life bears testimony to who God is and what he does and the power of his grace. Isn't he powerful? Hasn't he changed you? And if he has... Let the world see it by continuing to grow in your likeness to him. That's how we'll know that God is at work. That's how we'll know he's at work. 
Not just by filling a room, but by filling a room with a bunch of people that just can't stand how much they love God, how much they've been loved by him, how much they want to make him known because he's worth it. In verse 14, there's a result in being those who grow in knowledge so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So when we're young, we're really gullible, easily deceived. I think I've shared this before. Like I could quite literally, when my kids were two, three years old, I could convince my daughter I used to be a dolphin. I just, I'm sure of it. I'd be like, hey, when I was a dolphin, things were a little bit wetter down there. And she'd be like, whoa. That's what we're like when we're little, right? We just don't have categories. We don't have enough wisdom amassed to be like, well, that can't be true. You can't be a dolphin. But the point is, is that like the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of the word of God allows us sturdiness to face the winds and waves of doctrine. Because church family, they will come. And they have come. They are present. The deceitful schemes, whether it be internally from the enemy or externally from false teachers, abound. And when we're immature, we're easily stirred up to anger, anxiety, etc. And the picture of being tossed to and fro mimics the, the raging waves in Luke chapter 8 to describe the storm the disciples were in when Jesus fell asleep. As the word of God deepens our faith and knowledge of Christ, instead of being stirred or agitated, Mentally or spiritually, we become grounded. The result is the various waves of false doctrine, human craftiness, and deception don't carry us away because our minds are anchored on sound doctrine. Sturdiness of mind and heart results in a consistency of life. And verse 15 is really interesting as you look back at that. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So in contrast, being tossed to and fro by falsehood to speaking the truth in love it literally could be interpreted truthing in love. As we grow, as we mature, our words and our actions align with God's word to such an extent that we can only be described as truthing in love. Like we're like a living embodiment of truth. Isn't that interesting? Not just speaking truth, but living it. Our lives, word and deed, become deeply aligned with God's truth and we're consistently motivated by love for God and love for others. Family, the Christian maturity is to embrace Jesus' kingship as the head in every single area of our lives. I just want to ask you to consider today, is there any area of your life where he's not king? Is there any area of my life that I haven't given him access and full reign over? It would do all of us well to consider how the grace of God wants to push deeper and further into our lives, knowing that ultimately Jesus wants all of us. You see this played out through the rest of the book of Ephesians, that the grace of God and Jesus being the head and the king affects every single thing about me. In my speech, the way I deal with conflict, and the way I view sex and sexuality, in my work, in my marriage, in my thought life, in my gratitude, in my relationships with other Christians, in my relationship with non-Christians, I'm to grow up in every way. We are to grow up in every way. Last thing I'll say, Christian maturity involves growing in stature, knowledge, and 
contribution. Verse 16, from the whole body, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Contribution is this. A maturing Christian will work to use their gifts. A maturing Christian will work to use their gifts. In verse 12, we see how God has provided leaders to the church to equip the saints. Now, I think a lot of times we get it confused because we want to read into that text and say, God has provided leaders so that they would do the work of the ministry. That's not what this verse says. So if you look back at Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he gave leadership, this multifaceted leadership dynamic in the church in verse 11 to what? In verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And Paul indicates the growth and maturity of the church is dependent on something. And I'll finish with this thought. The growth and maturity of the body of Christ is dependent on one particular thing. What is it? What makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love? You do. You do. You as an individual body part, working properly according to the grace of God given you, will build the body of Christ up in love. Just let that sink in for a second. It's not merely just silent biblical preaching. That's not what this, these verses say. That's important. We endeavor to do that. The thing that allows the church, the body of Christ, to build itself up in love is each individual part working according to the, the positive grace that God has given to you. Are you? Will you? Do you believe it? I think one of our challenges were like, I don't... I, I don't feel like I've got any gifts to give. Well, maybe firstly, I'd encourage you that's not biblical. God has given you gifts. Secondly, I would say, well, they do have to be cultivated. Sometimes we need to just try things out, just start somewhere. But be encouraged by this. There is absolutely no useless part of the body of Christ. You know why? Because there's no such thing as useless grace. And you see in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 14, 1 Peter chapter 4, and right here, if it's true that every single member, body part, has been given a deposit of the grace of God, if you say that you don't have anything to give, then you're saying the grace of God to you is meaningless. Far be it from us to ever claim that the grace of God is meaningless and useless. You are useful. You have gifts to give. They need to be cultivated and used. And so the contribution is to work to use your gifts. First Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it. One of the most plain expressions of this reality. As we use our gifts, the whole body's built up. We strive to excel in building up the church. I have too many notes here. I can't get through all this. I'll close with this. As I grow up and as I contribute by using the gifts God has given me, and as you do the same, it's a form of worship, an expression of love for Jesus, my head and my king. It's not just simply because we need more servants than CW kids. We do. But we serve because we, it's a, a response of worship. Like, I love God and I want to be a blessing to other people. My life is not my own. 
My time is not my own. My treasure is not my own. I exist for someone else. I exist for God and for the people of God and for the world to know that Jesus is better and that he's enough and he's saved me. As I grow up and contribute, it's an expression of love for him. And as I grow up and as I contribute by using the gifts God has given me, it's an expression of love for others as the church body will be built up. I'll say this as I close. I'm going to read you a quote from Amy Carmichael, who's a missionary in India. One of the things that, that Amy Carmichael pointed out is that as you think about your life, like this moment right now, the paradigm of your growth, there is a way in which we could say, just do the next right thing. Just do the, the next right thing. Align your life right now with the word of God. Empowered by the grace of God, do the next right thing in the eyes of God. These little momentary decisions, when you leave this place, when you get up tomorrow morning, will you choose to set your feet on the word of God, on the son of God, and say, Lord, help me to do the next right thing before you. Because your life is made up, my life is made up of a million small choices that amass into a significant trajectory, either toward maturity or away from it. Because the spiritual life is not passive. If you're not moving forward in maturity, you're moving backward. So let me just read you this quote from Amy Carmichael. She was talking about how, as she looked at the, the famous people of God, the way that God worked in remarkable ways through people we might consider the famous ones throughout history, she said this. She says, I feel that I shall never be that. But they, speaking of those people that God used throughout the ages, but they won step by step by little bits of wills, little denials of self, little inward victories by faithfulness and very little things. They became what they are. No one sees these little hidden steps. They only see the accomplishment. But even so, those small steps were taken. Hear this last part. There is no sudden triumph in spiritual maturity. That is the work of the moment. Is Jesus worth it to us? Like in every single day that we live, like every breath we take, you get up tomorrow morning, is he worth it to pursue him again? To grow and become more and more like him. To evaluate your life and allow others into your life to evaluate the areas that you're, you're deficient, where there's atrophy and you need to put in more work to pursue maturity. Because again, this is, the Christian life's not meant to be lived on your own. Invite people into that process. We'd love to be a part of helping you grow in your love for Jesus and your usability for him in this world. And I pray that God would, in fact, be working in our midst through the individual maturity of each individual part, loving him, loving others, and giving to the things of God wholly and completely. Amen? Let's pray. God, when we, when we come to pray, uh, we are coming to ask you to do the things that we know we can't do ourselves. So I pray for us uh, collectively as a body. In doing so, I pray for my own heart. God, that, that each one of us would be dedicated to, to growing in respect to our salvation that the word would be planted way, deep, way down deep in our hearts. 
that we'd be devoted to the word and to prayer, to fellowship. We'd be people of generosity and people of patience and not short-tempered, and we'd be those who endeavor to love one another well. And God, would you help each person here to evaluate in their own hearts and lives particular areas where they're deficient, where they need to grow. And I pray that you'd also draw attention to areas of just overt sin. We've been trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. If there's any areas of sin that we need to confess and agree with you that they're wrong and turn away from, then I pray that this morning we'd be a part of that process, that you'd pry our hands off the things of this world and place them fully and wholeheartedly on Jesus. We love you. We thank you for your grace that not only has saved us, but empowers us to be different. And I pray that we wouldn't use your grace as an excuse to soften the call to maturity, but be empowered by your grace to pursue maturity. We love you. We're grateful to be forgiven. We're grateful to have new life in Jesus' name. He's the reason why we're here. He's the reason why we can sing. Our faith in him is the only reason we can be forgiven. And so we trust in him, and we sing one last song as an act of worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together.